welcome to week 54 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. Full disclosure, if you have not read The Great Gatsby or seen a film adaptation, there are spoilers. It may seem strange to include Gatsby here in the final decade of books that have made a difference to me, particularly given the fact that my first acquaintance with Gatsby was the 1974 film with Robert Redford as Gatsby, Mia Farrow as Daisy, Bruce Dern as her terrible husband Tom, and the lovely Sam Waterston as Nick Carraway. I was probably far too young to see the film, and I go into that a little more in the blog, but ever since seeing The Sting in 1973, I had a colossal crush on Robert Redford, only deepened by seeing him in Barefoot in the Park, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men and Three Days of the Condor. At 10 or 11, Gatsby seemed to me, frankly, a ridiculous story of adults making choices that were clearly stupid. Daisy, as depicted by Mia Farrow, was the biggest drip ever, and the whole thing was filmed in pastel colours with apparently a vat of Vaseline on the lens. In retrospect, technically, it is a faithful adaptation, certainly more reliable than the 2013 travesty produced by Baz Luhrmann, in which I was sad to see the waste of Kerry Mulligan, who was just my idea of a plausible Daisy. The first Fitzgerald book I read was This Side of Paradise, his first novel, highly autobiographical, about the early adulthood of a young man called Amory Blaine. At 16, I adored it. I worked my way through the short stories, The Beautiful and the Damned, as well as Tender is the Night, before finally reading Gatsby. And though I liked it at the time, I did not love it. That only happened much later, when I came to teach it. I can't remember which group I first taught it to, but it could have been when I was teaching A-level English literature. And then I definitely taught it at least twice in Brussels and then again on the Isle of Man. And here I am preparing to teach it again. Now, after decades of deepening familiarity, it is a book that has illuminated my perception of all sorts of things. What it is to strive, to dream, to yearn, the nature of success, the vacuity, the bitter contrast between wealth and poverty. What seemed once to me quite a silly and predictable story of infatuation, adultery, folly, cruelty and crime passionnel has become something altogether deeper and richer, more so than I ever imagined when that initial film version of the story disappointed me so. The first thing that amazes me is that Fitzgerald himself was so young and so prescient when he wrote the book. He began writing it in 1922-23, when he was about 26 or 27, and it was published in 1925, well before the ruin that was unleashed around the world by the Wall Street crash. It was based on the life he led after the publication of This Side of Paradise in 1920. It had been a bestseller, made him tons of money, as were his stories and The Beautiful and the Damned. He and his wife Zelda lived in successive hotels in New York until they were kicked out from one to the next for being too loud, too chaotic. They then moved to Long Island and were invited everywhere, including to parties given by a Long Island neighbour, Max Gerlach, from whose life Fitzgerald lifted some of the surface touches that make Gatsby who he is. The first thing that I love about this book is the narrative voice of Nick Carraway. There is 
a priggishness about Nick, recipient of the, in quotes, secret griefs of wild unknown men while it, whilst in college, priding himself on his steadiness, his trustworthiness, his reliability. And yet, in many ways, he is an unreliable narrator, not because he is deliberately seeking to conceal anything from us readers, but because of his naivety, despite his own sense of world weariness and sophistication. He only partially understands what he sees and hears. He is embarrassed when Daisy reveals to him the story of her daughter's birth, Tom God knows where with God knows whom, and Daisy's own weary hope that her daughter will be a fool, simply a beautiful little fool, and uneasy when he sees the complicity between Daisy and her awful husband, Tom Buchanan. Daisy is well aware that Tom is cheating on her, but that is secondary to the true partnership between the Buchanans, a partnership of the excessively wealthy insulating themselves against the mess of normal human emotion. The end of that opening chapter is also when Nick first sees his extraordinarily wealthy neighbour Jay Gatsby reaching out towards the green light at the end of a dock far over the water. And then he vanishes. Gatsby, the novel, has only nine chapters. It is a short book, but it is rich with symbolism, with observational acuteness, Fitzgerald's ability to skewer characterization of even minor characters. The novel scenes are filtered not simply through Nick's narrative voice, but also through a haze of excess and indulgence. There is the dreadful afternoon Nick is forced to spend in New York with Tom, his vulgar, uneducated mistress Myrtle Wilson, her sister Catherine, and a grim couple, the McKees. Whiskey flows, and to dispel his revulsion, Nick drinks deep, learning more of his mysterious neighbour from Catherine, who gossips about Gatsby's mysterious past. Fitzgerald captures drunken behaviour well, particularly the chaos of Gatsby's parties, from Nick's fastidious claim to be one of the very few guests with an actual invitation, through to the lavish descriptions of the food, the cocktail bar, the dancing, the enormous tidal number of guests. We're nearly a third of the way through the book when Nick first actually encounters Gatsby in the flesh, and then our hero is over-formal, mannered controlled, and Nick cannot quite work out what or who he has met. It is easy to miss amidst the set pieces in each chapter, but Fitzgerald also captures very effectively the sense of loneliness and isolation that come when we are first starting our real work in our mid to late 20s, and the oddness of the way that some relationships in this case, notably Jordan Baker's with Nick, are doomed to dissipate or fizzle out. Nick sees Jordan, one of Daisy's oldest friends, as incurably dishonest, and yet in the book she seems a more reliable commentator, or at least as clear-eyed an observer of the situation between Daisy and Gatsby as Nick. Gatsby himself seems initially ludicrous, carrying his medal from Montenegro and a picture of himself at Oxford with a cricket bat, his affected speech, his transparent lies about his background and money, but he is hardly the only liar. Nick is already in an invidious position, cousin of Tom Buchanan's wife and introduced to Tom's mistress, revolted by the patent lies on which the relationship between Tom and Myrtle is founded, the claim that neither can stand their husband or wife. 
Compared with Tom's sordid infidelity, Gatsby's chivalrous passion for Daisy seems noble and romantic. The tragic ending is inevitable. From the moment that Nick invites Daisy to tea and produces Gatsby in his cottage like a magician with a rabbit out of his hat, it is clear that the love Gatsby has for Daisy is doomed, has nowhere to go. Fitzgerald chooses to make the story very neat, very contained. Daisy destroys Myrtle physically, then Wilson, her widower, spurred on by Tom, kills first Gatsby and then himself, whilst Daisy and Tom abandon East Egg for good. But the point of The Great Gatsby is not the details or the tidiness of the plot. It is about something completely other than a tale of adultery uncovered. And this takes me to how and why this novella has worked on me over the years, why I find it ever more resident and so rereadable. The first aspect is the milieu, the contrasts between East Egg, West Egg, the Valley of Ashes, New York itself. Economically, Fitzgerald conveys the interdependence and isolation of these places. New York, raucous, corrupt, is a place where the foolish and indolent are conned, where Meyer Wolfsheim conducts his business, rigging games, running rackets, and where Nick seems to travel on a rather loose timetable to his job in an anonymous bond house. The Valley of Ashes, that grey, impoverished portal between the elegance of the upper end of Long Island and New York, where the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg look down on the travellers and the residents alike, is the miserable foundation for the wealth of both the Buchanans and Gatsby. It is a land of wasted dreams and false promises, such as Tom's empty agreement to let Wilson, Myrtle's husband, have his little coupé to sell. Then there are West Egg, the unfashionable promontory, and East Egg, the elegant end, 20 miles from the city. West Egg is Gatsby's end of the bay, vulgar, wild, nouveau riche, arriviste, whilst East Egg, where Tom and Daisy live, is theoretically old money, although Tom has rented the place from Domain, the oil man, with only 20 or 30 years of oil fortunes to make that money a bit more respectable. East Egg is long lawns, polo, elegant French windows leading onto terraces, billowing swathes of white curtain, whilst West Egg, at least embodied in Gatsby's house, is home to mansions that are copies and pastiches, transplanted French chateau inhabited by recent celebrities, Broadway producers, Hollywood filmmakers, purveyors of dreams. There is a suggestion that East Egg is solid, stable, that the fortunes that fund the homes there are unlikely to vanish, whilst West Egg is a more ephemeral, temporary and fleeting environment. But both West Egg and East Egg depend on the city and the Valley of Ashes for their existence, and in Tom's case, for an escape from his life of privilege and comfort. Fitzgerald explores the sense of entitlement that leads to exploitation and inequality. We see this most clearly in Wilson, a pale man leached by circumstance of health, energy. He is described as spiritless, anemic, faintly handsome, a ghost through whom his vital, vivid wife passes. Wilson's business is not simply running a petrol pump. He is a mechanic and theoretically buying and selling cars. 
His failure in this is an indicator of how hard it is to escape poverty in the only theoretically egalitarian world of America, a world of apparent opportunity and dreams for some, but for those trapped in the Valley of Ashes, an unrelenting desolation where they must pursue obscure operations. Cars run through the narrative, vehicles of fantasy and death. Jordan Baker, Daisy's friend and for a time Nick's lover, first sees Gatsby and Daisy together gazing into each other's eyes in Daisy's car back in Louisville. One of the most disordered moments at the end of one of Gatsby's parties is when a drunken guest smashes into a wall in a brand new coupe and the wheel is shorn from the car. Nick, as I mentioned, describes Jordan as incurably dishonest and they discuss her poor driving and her assumption that she is able to be careless because everyone else will be careful. And of course, the catastrophe that leads inexorably to tragedy is car-based. Daisy, driving Gatsby's car, runs Myrtle down. Wilson, having seen Tom driving the car earlier that day, initially believes it is a Buchanan car, but Tom tells the distraught widower that it is Gatsby's car, hinting that it was Gatsby who so carelessly killed Myrtle on the drive back to the eggs. Wilson goes to Gatsby's house, kills him, then shoots himself. By this time, Tom and Daisy, even more careless than Jordan, have left Long Island for good. Nick observes how they smashed things up and left other people to clear up the mess. He believes that Gatsby knew that Daisy would never leave Tom, that his dream, the dream that had sustained and driven him for all the years from the moment he left Louisville in 1917 through the war and his return to America and his accumulation of extraordinary wealth was empty and could never be realised. But what Nick has learnt to admire is Gatsby's readiness, his willingness to dream, that sense of abundant possibility. Gatsby invests his dreams wholly in Daisy herself and pays the price for, as Nick observes, the moment Gatsby wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, his mind could never romp again like the mind of God. This novel is so short, but so rich, not simply in its acute depictions of human nature, nor its evisceration of an American dream before the idea of the American dream was even conceived. That dates from 1931. It also poses those fundamental questions about who we are, how we became what we are, about the choices we make and their consequences, about the ways and means that our inner selves are shaped and limited through the actions that our outer selves take. The moment Gatsby kisses Daisy back in Louisville in the autumn of 1917 leads inexorably to the discovery of his body in his swimming pool as the summer of 1922 is fading away. And even though he has an inkling of the impact of following that dream, he pursues the green light at the end of the dock, and it is this pursuit that makes him admirable, and as Nick says in his final farewell, worth the whole damn bunch put together. Join me next week for an exploration of the final Shakespeare in this series, Othello. Othello.